the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the PAUSE platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and I'm delighted today to welcome Becca Hansen, who is a principal at Studio Hansen Roberts, an ongoing collaborator with SHR Studios and a fellow of the American Society of Landscape Architects. Welcome, Becca. Well, it's nice to be here, Sabrina. Thank you. Very much looking forward. And we always like to start the podcast with like a short early story of perhaps connecting with an animal or a landscape. So perhaps you could share um, one of those stories with us. Oh, I'd be delighted to do that. I, you know, I was trying to think back to my early childhood and, and it's so vivid and clear to me. I was really, really fortunate um, where I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio to be in this this funny little new development um, that was built in the late 40s, early 50s, and they had left a big swath of woodlands behind where all of our houses were, and it had a stream running through it. And so all of the neighborhood kids would spend time in the woods, as we called them, and salamanders and crawdads and anything we could get our hands on and climbing the trees was really a fundamental part of our childhood growing up. And it makes it really hard for me to think about children growing up without access to that kind of landscape and just observing the creatures around them. It's just, you know, nobody should, should have to grow up without nature in their lives. No, absolutely. And there's such a, especially today when so many people are living near cities, in cities, and, you know, the environment, the nature is dwindling. It's so important to create all kinds of landscapes and having all kinds of sorts of nature and connections with the natural world and other animals. So it's really important. So perhaps, you know, most of the podcasters haven't actually been people who are working in the domain that you are working in and studying mm-hmm. landscape architecture. Of course, we had uh, John Cole, but uh, it's still a fairly new uh, topic to this podcast. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about your studies, uh, BLA, landscape architecture at the University of Washington, and uh, share some of that background with us. Oh, I'd be delighted to. You know, I, I started off my university career in architecture, and I very quickly decided that I wasn't set out to be an architect at all. So I took a nine-year sabbatical and and had a child during that time and lived in Europe for a good chunk of the time. And I can remember being at the Royal Horticultural Society's gardens in Wisley in the UK. And I came walking around the corner with my six-month-old and they were building the Great Rockery at that point. And it was just this amazing landscape, a recreated landscape of rock garden plants from other places. And I thought, oh my God, that's what I want to do. Well, so when I moved back to the the United States and to uh, Seattle, Washington and enrolled in the University of Washington, then it was in landscape architecture. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it, but I knew that I wanted to make the world a better place. 
I was deeply involved in ecology and graduated with a, a, a minor in plant community ecology and came out of that in the late 70s during the, the ecology movement and went to work for Jones and Jones. At that time, they were doing the master plan for Woodland Park Zoo and, and working on the savanna out there and got to know John Coe very well during that time and went from just applying landscape architecture and ecology to looking at the intertwined lives of people and animals and the landscape. And during the process of, of working on several zoos during that time, came to fall in love with the people who worked in zoos, the, the keepers, the curators, the administrators, and, and realizing that people who were really involved in zoos and trying to make them a better place were the kind of people that I really wanted to work with because it, you know, much like uh, the woods that I grew up with, with zoos, when they are doing it right and reaching out to their communities can provide those kinds of experiences to people and the kind of care for animals that makes the world a better place. And so I, I have had the best time over the last 40 years working within this environment and, and feeling gratified every day that I get up and, and start working, I get to learn something new and I get to apply something that I learned somewhere along the line and get to take something from one area of practice and apply it to another area of practice. I, I love it. So. Yes, I can hear that. And, and I remember us meeting and I still remember that vibrance. So that, that's absolutely clear. And before we go into like how you got into zoo design and, and more on zoo design, can you talk to us a little bit about, because I'm intrigued, about plant community? Well, you know, in every landscape, and, you know, whether it's um, a meadow habitat or a forest habitat or that ecotone between habitats, you have plants that are making their living doing the things that they do best and interacting with the world around them. And so coming to understand plant community ecology and the interrelationships of the plants and the soil and the water and the air and the insects and the herbivores around them, you really realize the, the depth that we're all engaged with one another. Um, and so it was not hard at all to really take that focus on plants and widen it, if you will, to include animals in it, because the two of them actually work really well together. Yes, wonderful. I think there is uh, too little talk about uh, that so topic. So I'm really grateful that you're sharing that whole web of life and how every everyone and everything is connected. So and that, of course, how you bring that to zoo design. So could you share with us how how did you get into uh, zoo design? And and of course, you know, you already mentioned that uh, as zoos are changing into focusing on mm. conservation and of course animal well-being. Yeah, well, you know, it was a total accident. I liked the work that Jones and Jones was doing in in e ecological design and large landscape restoration and kind of backed into zoos um, unintentionally. And so it was as a result of that and starting to work more with zoos. And, and I think most everyone who has ever worked with zoos realize it takes a special kind of person to work with them because you're working with people who care more about their animals than they do almost anything else in their lives. And, and 
you know, that care radiates into the way they think about the world. And so you have to go to where they are. You have to understand their care for these animals. And you have to understand how you want animals to be able to live rich and fulfilling lives for the rest of their lives. And then what you're designing is going to be their home 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's a huge responsibility because, you know, most other landscapes that you're working with, people in particular have a choice to be there or to not be there, uh, to go and seek their welfare, to fulfill their interests someplace else. But animals in a zoo don't. And so designing it for the flexibility um, of being able to change things about keeping staff involved in the lives of animals and making that, again, a, a rich and fulfilling life for everyone, you know, not just the animals, but the staff that are there so that, so that everybody looks forward to a new day dawning, if you will. I love that. I, I should mention then, you know, so coming from Jones and Jones, then I started the Portico Group in 1983. And at, at that time, we were doing a lot of work with parks and recreation, libraries, museums, children's museums, um, and zoos and aquariums. And, you know, over a period of time, you realize how much expertise a zoo needs to have if you're going to be designing A for the animals, B for the, the people and both of their shared welfare, C for the staff, and making that really a, a, a wonderful experience for them every time they come to work. And then being able to understand how to create this, this place that sort of reverberates with the mission of the place, conservation of landscapes, conservation of species, and making it something that, that people want to come back to and devote their lives to, if at all possible, at least to be touched by the passion of the people that have put this place together. Yes, absolutely. It's really, you know, that, like you almost say, that, that um, vibration of the passion that touches others and that they will you know, hopefully do whatever they can in their bubble of influence, whether it's urban wildlife or something with their community or further away. Right. So, yeah, how do we design for that? And perhaps, you know, I was really, I was obviously going to the website and learning more about your work and the company's work. And um, I would like to read a section. Um, it says, our world is full of wild and remarkable forms of life intermingling in intricate systems that we, as a single species among them, are only beginning to understand. As designers and planners, our joy lies in engaging people with elements of this living world and fostering a thriving coexistence with wildness in our midst and in our world. And then another section says, we strive to imbue others with passion, compassion, and insatiable curiosity that drives us to create memorable destinations. I love all that. That one experiences with the senses and feels with the heart. And hearts once change forever alter the future. And I really, really, you know, there's so much wonderful, beautiful words and, and work and everything that you're doing. So perhaps can you talk more about um, Studio Hansen Roberts and mm -hmm. of course the ongoing collaboration of the SHR studios that um, oh, I yeah. mean, yes absolutely you know so that's the next stage of evolution right so oh when was it I mean 2003 I think it was if I'm remembering all the dates right 
uh, we started, my husband and I uh, decided that we really needed to devote our professional lives to zoos and aquariums and and these these wild places where people and animals come together in close association and everybody needs to be kept safe from one another and and people in in particular need to be exposed to that 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 wealth and that beauty of the space as you were those words I, I read those all the time and I go those were really fun to write and I still believe in them very much so we started at that point studio Hanson Roberts and um, at that time we didn't know whether anybody would hire us because we were the small little firm and we'd never been busier at that point the word got out and and people called and said, can you work on this project? Can you advise us on this project? And so we started a lot of overseas work at that point, in particular with the Auckland Zoo and eventually with um, Taronga and Zoos Victoria in Australia and then many other places overseas. And one of the, the great joys of that kind of work is meeting so many different kinds of people so many and working in so many different cultures and, and learning at a really gut level that there are so many different ways of accomplishing the same thing and keeping your eyes open and continuing to learn from those people around you was really part of the delight of, of what motivated us to keep moving forward. So David and I have grown a firm here the, of 12 of us. Uh, we have the offices on Bainbridge Island and everybody at this point lives across from Seattle on the island or just immediately off the island to the north. And we, we commute to zoos across the country and around the world as we need to. And with COVID-19 coming in, we've all figured out how to keep projects going by Zoom or by Teams. We've even we've got a big construction project in Auckland right now. And for a year and a half, we've been doing construction site observation by Teams. And it's been a total pain, but everybody has made it through and in good spirits. And so just recently, the, as of this year, David and I are starting to step away from day-to-day -day management of the firm. And so um, our other two partners uh, incorporated a new firm, which they have called SHR Studios, which we are kind of under their umbrella. We are still practicing. We work with them. They work with us, but at least they've got management responsibility over the, the projects that are in the office. And it makes it easier for David and me to have easy weeks. We try to take Fridays off every week and sometimes we're successful and sometimes we're not but especially working in the southern hemisphere you know mondays are there are our sundays here and your work week just gets switched around a bit so that's where we are right now not retired definitely not retired but taking things a little bit easier and and taking that time to continue to learn about where in the world zoos are going in the future and is this a good time to talk a little bit about that, Sabrina? Absolutely. Yes, please do. Okay. Well, you know, one of the things that, that I keep thinking about is the, the fact that zoos have spent so much time um, turning themselves into this sort of sacred space where they keep animals safe and conservation flows out from that and, and that they become almost like this clubhouse that they want people to come back to again and again and again. And it it begins to put so much burden on that, that acreage to fulfill all those expectations that everybody has, plus the cost of construction, plus 
you know, the cost of keeping animals and then rebuilding habitats all the time, that one of the things we keep looking at is how can you break down the walls of the zoo? Not to say get rid of the animals, but to say, can we simplify the collection? Can we simplify the way we think of animals in our care? Can we reach out beyond the walls and put the zoo within communities? Are there species of concern and interest that we should be paying attention to. And, and a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking that wouldn't it be cool if we could start a movement whereby kids would suddenly get the fact that in their hardware stores and their garden centers, there's all these insecticides and herbicides that are being sold, which wind up poisoning the land and poisoning the water and killing insects because you don't like insects. Couldn't we think about starting a movement about, well, maybe we should really love the insects. And if we don't want certain insects around us, then let's quit creating habitat for them and they will move on of their own volition because the habitat no longer meets their needs. And so this is one of those un half formed, basically unformed ideas. But when we think about practicing conservation around us in our everyday lives, you know, there's a whole spectrum of things that we can be involved in to aid and support the living world around us. So that's kind of where my mind is going right now, both breaking down the zoo, getting the zoo out into the community, much more aligned with the community of everyday people and considering those people who can't get to the zoo or for whom going to the zoo is a foreign concept but beginning to make conservation, love of animals, love of landscapes, part of their everyday life by taking care and showing concern over their lives where they are, rather than asking them to come to us. Yes, I love that. I think that's a really great way of thinking and empowering people also, like in what way can you create a balcony garden or in your own garden so that butterflies can come or you can safely have you know other insects come that you can maybe watch from a distance if you don't want them near near so there's all these you know actions that they could be involved in um and that's really important right so people always want to know how can i help and, yep. and bring that into their lives more um, by starting perhaps like in a, in a hardware store or something else. I think that's a great idea. Where do people go and how can we reach them? Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. No, I like that. So you, uh, the tagline is conservation through design. And so perhaps you could uh, talk a little bit about some of the projects. Obviously we'll put a link to the company and the, you know, the websites and ways to contact you and see a lot of the work that you're doing. But perhaps you can talk a little bit. You already mentioned some of your clients, but what sorts of, of habitats have you designed uh, or perhaps turned around? Hmm. Well, I can talk about a few of the, the current ones right now and then maybe some past ones. Um, we've been working for a number of years with the Houston Zoo. We started with a master plan and looked at really converting a number of the habitats that were pretty generic um, and, and not as focused on animal welfare to habitats that really put animal welfare first, but also were focused on those areas where the zoo was deeply involved in conservation activities in the range countries. So two of the recent exhibits, one is done, which is the Pantanal exhibit, 
and the Galapagos exhibit is under construction right now, but both of those are meant to focus people's attention on these amazing landscapes, amazing creatures that are so ideally suited to making their, their living in these places. And what can we do to, to support the ongoing livelihoods, if you will, of those places? So that continues to be a delight to work with that. But there's an, another aspect to conservation by design. You know, one is to, to play with the mission of the organization and make sure that the conservation of wild species and wild places is in their mission. And we're doing everything we can through our design work to support that mission. But equally, the whole uh, concept of sustainability, of the living building challenge, of looking at the materials and the practices that we're using to minimize our footprint as much as possible. And, it, and it's really, really hard stuff. So for instance, two of the things we've done looking at water uh, as a resource that you want to conserve. Uh, one example is at Werribee Open Range Zoo, which is part of uh, one of Zoos Victoria's uh, zoos in outside of Melbourne, Australia. We did a biofiltered hippo exhibit because, and we really got started on that because we all looked at the amount of money they had and number one, doing underwater viewing as, as gorgeous as hippos are underwater, it's really expensive. It's expensive to construct and it's expensive to continue to operate. And so we made a decision that we were gonna put the, the animals and people as close to the same level in the water, but we weren't gonna go underwater and that the water would be a deep, tea colored if, if we could possibly achieve that. And the way we chose to achieve that was we built a hectare of wetlands then that supported the filtration, the biofiltration of the whole hippo exhibit, which was built to house up to eight hippos. So with some tweaking on that, because it was the first time that had ever been done for hippos, that is still going to this day. And it was really a delight to, to work our way through that kind of project and that kind of thinking with the support of the zoo. And one of the real bonuses then is all of the other biodiversity that comes in with treating water respectfully as a living entity that way, that lots of birds have come into the habitat and now the wetlands is one of those places that birders love to go and take a look at. Plus we've got yabbies in the water and eels in the water and the whole thing has just really come alive. And then there's another exhibit at Woodland Park Zoo where we were working on a penguin exhibit, a Humboldt penguin exhibit. And our point there, because underwater viewing was important, so we needed to have clear water. The point of view that we took with the zoo was to, to make the statement that we only want to turn on the tap once and accept the gift of water from the community. And then we would take care of that water by our filtration and topping up with rainwater and, and the general care of the whole system. With the, the system that we designed at Woodland Park Zoo, we capture stormwater runoff to top up the water. We run the backwash through a wetland exhibit. So we get biofiltration and we return all of that water back into the system and we run all of the water through geothermal wells in the ground, which maintains the temperature so that we're not having to use extra electricity. And so that is just, it's a, pretty much a closed system. 
and to my knowledge, they have never had to um, release all the water into the system or out of the system. And they've been able to take care of it as we had surmised that they could do right at the beginning of that. So the two very different examples about how you treat water respectfully and make it work for you in ways that support the animals' lives in those habitats. So that that's an example of conservation Beautiful. by design. Yeah. yeah. I just I just love it and I love the words you use. It it reflects obviously a deep philosophy on care for the environment, care for what we often call resources. Um, mm. Materials that we use, but like water as a gift, gift from the community, and really, you know, of course, listening to clients, working with what they need, what they would like to see, and ways to connect and and their to their goals, and but you know, really, this whole yeah aspect of respect and care, and really looking at how can we make all this work and still you know be using conservation by design and well-being and care for everybody yeah that's wonderful and you know sabrina i think you know people are not dumb at all when they walk through the doors they know whether the organization that they are engaging with cares whether it cares about them whether it cares about the landscape whether it cares about the trash receptacles whether it cares about the animals you cannot hide that kind of thing from people. They understand that through every pore in their body. And so practicing a life of care giving and caretaking and everything you do is probably the, the highest aspiration that we should all have because it makes the world a better place, but it also is a foundation of happiness. And you know, if, if we had a whole bunch more happiness by t people taking care of the things around them and the people around them, I think we'd be in a lot better place. Absolutely. Yes. And, and I so agree. It reminds me of this saying by Ralph Waldo Emerson, what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. Right. That's and it. People, yep. yeah, people, people, you know, they, they see it, right? And you don't need to explain it because they feel it, they see it, it just, it's everywhere. So yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, could you talk to us a little bit about, because you talked about obviously working with, with the clients, with the community, with the animals, with everybody, with all the stakeholders. And can you talk to us a little bit about why it's important that organizations make themselves relevant to year-round residents, where they operate? In what ways have you worked on that topic? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, a lot of my early work was with public projects, whether it was a parks and recreation uh, work or library work or museum work. And, and all of that work is based upon understanding the, the community around you and the community's desires for how they want to spend their tax dollars, for instance, or how they want to spend their time. And so seeking ways of better community, communicating with that group and realizing that their time is precious. Uh, they're giving of their time freely to come and talk to you. And how do you uh, grant them the respect necessary to be able to listen and accommodate the information that you're receiving and be able to turn that back around in ways that they can see that they have been heard. 
So that that goes all the way from, you know, how do you deal with your family to how do you deal with the staff in the zoo to how do you deal with the people who surround the zoo, the immediate neighbors to the community at large and and donors beyond that. You know, they're all they all have different levels of importance in the whole process of design. But nevertheless, they're they're all people and they deserve the respect that you need to show them if you are going to be honestly listening to what they have to say. Did that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I found that fascinating to read about with regards to, you know, not just looking at tourism and people coming from the outside, but really, really looking. Again, it it talks so much to local and to community and 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 the work there and the connections there rather than only looking at you know bringing people from the outside in so i find that really interesting and i don't uh, see that discussed very often so mm. well you know, you know you spend an awful lot of time and money designing things to bring people through the door the first time and to only spend that time and money on bringing somebody through the door once is really kind of a silly waste of time and, and what you really are wanting to do is to bring them back again and again. So whether they come back physically or whether they're on your website, whether they're engaging with programs, whether they uh, talk about you, whether they write you letters, that kind of engagement is the kind of investment that we want. I think all zoos want that. Just sometimes you run after dollars in kind of a helter-skelter way. And I think what we've all learned how to do is to be much more focused and much more thoughtful about how we approach that. Yes, absolutely. Could you, before we go into, because you know you talk about environments interactive and play, and so can you talk to us a little bit more about perhaps some other examples of design and sustainability, perhaps on materials used or how uh, environments are designed? Um, could you share some more insights on that? Mm. Well, I can share one of the, the conundrums that we face right now. You know, one of the one of the ways that we have of replicating landscapes is to use what are called by many people fake rocks, uh, where you're using concrete in the form of shotcrete or gunite to create hard landscapes that look natural but actually act as barriers for the animals so that you you are not having people standing looking into a habitat that is ringed by fences, if you will. So you're, you're hiding the fences. But concrete in and of itself is one of the highest carbon footprints that we can ever possibly use in the zoo. And, and it continues to bedevil us about how do we deal with that? And, and I think, you know, one of the, the ways that we have to deal with that is, is through this realization that we cannot constantly be redeveloping the zoo, that we have got to do the best job that we possibly can in creating large enough spaces and rich enough spaces that we are not constantly tearing down and remodeling. We can't do a new, new blockbuster because of the both the embodied energy that both goes to waste and you're reusing, as well as the capital costs that go into it. It just, it gets to be too expensive. And so then if you're trying to build for the long-term, you can justify a, a certain level of investment that you might not otherwise 
do and you focus on programs and you focus on interactions with animals and you focus on all kinds of other things but but i think we're all going through right now looking at what are the best materials that we can use in order to be just as sustainable as we possibly can with the development of these places that that we love to go they're parks they're gorgeous they're full of of life but they also come come at a cost so we're all working hard at that. You know, one of the things many people do is, you know, we will not use any more um, hardwood from tropical forests. Instead, we'll use plastic lumber, but plastic lumber comes at a cost to the environment as well because of the microplastics that come off of that. And because you're stimulating then sort of a need that people say, well, if we, th this is used by um, recyclers and it's all recycled plastic. And so we're taking plastic out of the environment and putting it into the lumber. And yet that then uh, forces you into a way of thinking of you have to keep producing plastic in order to get uh, recycled plastic. And so I think there are other ways we can do this, both by using recycled lumber. A um, uh, number of processes have come out where softwood that is, is grown in plantation forests can be converted through various heat and chemical processes like um, Sure, I just forgot the name of it. Anyway, one chemical process uses uh, the equivalent of vinegar in it. And so being able to use non-toxic chemicals to harden the wood so that it lasts longer. I think we're all looking for solutions about how do we do that and, and not just send construction waste to the landfills. Absolutely, yeah, that resonates so much because often, you know, people are like, oh, we can just recycle it or we can just, uh, it doesn't really matter. And I'm like, well, it does matter. You know, we're yeah. really focused on reducing and not, like not extra producing. And um, Right, right. And you can't just keep kicking the can down the road. You can't no, just use it and go, oh, well, we'll send it on to the recyclers. No, there has to be an approach where you are very, very conscious of both your use of the material and then the reuse, redistribution or waste of the material after you're done with it and take responsibility for that. Absolutely. Yes, really. I really like that. So now maybe we can shift a little bit and you can dive a little bit deeper into, you know, you write about making environments interactive and also incorporating play. So perhaps you can talk a little bit and give some examples of how you've done that and, and why that is important. You know, one of the things that is, has been important to me all along is how do children engage with these landscapes and these animals that they can't touch and they can't even necessarily get near. But, but I, today we use the term empathy. Um, previous to that, it was about focusing on parallel play, building up ways that children could emulate the animals and, and thereby gain empathy into their lives. And so that, that whole concept of parallel play where it's not gratuitous play and it's not plastic slides with red colors and blue colors and things, but, but nature play, if you will, using natural materials and, and very conscious decisions about how you can create play opportunities that replicate the things that animals are doing that people do in the landscape as you build competency in interacting with the world around you. 
So that whole concept of parallel play and nature play, uh, getting equipment out of the way and letting kids in particular, and hopefully their parents, engage in natural play activities and just spending time with one another. You want parents to, to walk into a space and be able to let go of the hands of the children and let them experience the world for themselves and that you know that they are safe enough and that they're not going to die on your watch, but also that they'll come out of it with a completely different grasp of what it is to be alive in the world today. So, so play is, is, you know, from a physical point of view and from a, this concept of, of mastery, you know, that's, it's a word I haven't found a better term for, but doing things repetitively over and over again in order to become fluid in, in your ability to use motions or ways of thinking is important for all of us as we learn to interact with the world around us. And thinking is like that too. You don't want people to just observe something and then move on. You want them to actually think and engage with things. So a number of years ago, I had been working with Science North in Sudbury, Ontario, and they had a, um, an operation there called Nature Exchange, where they had worked out this kind of swap shop approach to things where kids could collect things from nature, bring them in with knowledge, and trade them for points to be able to get things in the collection and take them home with them. And I saw fundamental changes in kids. And it wasn't just because they were going out and collecting anything they wanted to collect. It was because they had rules and regulations about what they could collect. So there were all the federal, and um, because this was Canada, then the provincial rules about what you could collect or not collect, including you can't collect eagle feathers and you know, you're not gonna go torture cats and kill them about that. So you have to be respectful. And when you bring those things in, you bring them in with knowledge about that and you have a conversation with the curator at Nature Exchange and, and this exchange happens. And so that was amazing because it got families involved in it too. So the first group that I worked with after that was the Dallas Zoo and held a number of workshops going, can we do this in the new children's zoo that we were designing there? This would be really great. It would be something so much more meaningful in a children's zoo than anything that I had seen before. And it took a lot of conversations because people were so afraid that kids would go out and they would shoot a turtle or kill a cat and bring the skull in. And, you know, things were going to just be awful. But, but what we got to eventually was a an understanding, a realization that the, the soul of the child was what was important and that you needed to wrap your arms around wherever they were at that time. And if a child did come in with a turtle and you kind of go on a little sketchy about, did they kill that turtle? And like, now they have the shell that there were ways of dealing with it. You could send the shell back and have them bury it, but there was something that they could learn from that and not be shamed by it because what you wanted was to see change and growth within that child. And so it's one of the most unique experiences ever. And, and it's the fact of having those rich and deep conversations that happen when you involve the family, the child, the institution, then and the things around them. So it, it's still a facility that, that I love. And when done right, 
and the commitment of the organization is behind it, then I think you wind up seeing real magic happen. Yes, I love that. I think, you know, you, you really talk about this kind of embodiment and being with your, you know, your body, with your, with your heart, with your soul or spirit or whatever words that resonates with you in, in nature and connecting and being part and feeling that part and, and learning together, right? And, and doing that from a very young age to learn about care and respect and rules and, uh, and why these are important and how you mm-hmm. can contribute to that, to that sort of society, that sort of community. Yeah. I really like that. And I love also this, this incorporating of play, you know, getting your hands in the dirt and all that and, and getting the adults, you know, there's so much research showing that, you know, many people as they age and become older, they, uh, they are, um, you know, I'm kind of stopping to play, right? There's right. Some, so creating that space where you can all play in various ways and engage. Uh, that's just yeah. such a lovely way to uh, interact and learn and, be together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, Sabrina, one of the things that, that I would love to see is, as part of a zoo's outreach into the community is to reach out to those places where children are playing right now and turn them into ecological gardens. And so the the worms and the insects and the other things that the those spaces are alive with possibility. And and there's no other organization that can reach kids on that level. And so in creating partnerships between parks and recreation departments, the zoo, to really create these these deeply fulfilling places where all kinds of people can come together and parents can come together. And you can imagine older people coming and doing a Tai Chi class amidst the butterflies. Maybe I'm totally idealistic about this, but, but I think there's some really interesting things that we can do within our cities that would stand us in good stead in thinking about conservation of wild places and wild species as well. Yes, absolutely. And this sense of community of like diversity and inclusion and getting everybody, you know, together, but perhaps in different spaces and learning from each other. And, you know, I think also, especially what we know from a lot of people living in cities and also, you know, not people maybe having their families or friends and it just creates so many opportunities for people to also get to know other people and other cultures and ways of being together um, and perhaps it's tai chi between the butterflies I like that <laughs> yeah. yeah well well you know the other thing that, that dawns on me too is if we all have our own creation stories that we carry within us um and many times we don't know what those are. We, you know, we've left our family or we've left a, a native culture somewhere in the deep past. And yet there's still stories that we carry within us. And, and many of the people that, that seem to be lost in cities have, have kind of not found that story within them. And so how can we expect them to absorb this story that we want to teach them about our oneness with nature when they have no place to put that story within themselves. And so I think as we think differently about equity and justice, about reaching out to our communities to bring them into our story, we have to be able to step into their story as well. Yes, absolutely. I I think that is so key and so important to acknowledge and to really, you know, underpin with what it is that we're doing and how we're doing things to really be. Again, it brings that 
respect and connection, everything back to, you know, are we listening? Are we, you know, there? Are we holding space? So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, you talk about, of course, conservation, you talk about environments, about far away places, but very much about local places and communities and, and cities and looking at in what ways can we connect to the natural world or bring more nature into urban or city areas. And of course, when you are designing, including when you're designing, of course, zoos and aquariums and working together, can you talk a little bit about who needs to be also at the table? And perhaps, you know, I don't know, you can kind of decide what you think would work best. I would like mm -hmm. to hear more about the cost estimator and why that person is so important, or whether you maybe want to start first from the specific attention to animal and, and people well-being and then and then move uh, through that. That I leave that okay. up to your advice. Yeah. I'll see where this conversation goes. Um, we'll start someplace. You know, when I think about bringing teams together, there's obviously the the zoo or the aquarium team, and and we always try to involve as many people as possible. So there will be the the decision makers, the group of people who just need to be informed, and the interested others out there who will get the information somewhere along the line. But you need to figure out those those communication bridges between all of those groups so that everybody feels included as they go through that. And then many times, because these organizations work intensively with one another, you you kind of look for who are the people that we, you could bring in from the outside to kind of shake it up a little bit, provide a, a little bit of additional expertise. I mean, no, no zoo is without expertise and there is deep and abiding expertise that exists everywhere. But there are things that can get you to smile or to think about things differently and, and that loosen up the design process so that everybody feels fully engaged in it rather than just me as a designer coming in and taking what you say you want to do and, and creating magic and suddenly it goes on paper and suddenly it's built and how did that happen? And so again, it's another chance for conservation, but, but you, you can't impose those conversations and you have to figure out how they occur in a very natural way that keeps everybody relaxed, lets everybody know we're all on the same side of the table and that together we're gonna create real magic, reasonably priced while you wait which is what we say that we do all the time. So, which brings us back to the second part of that reasonably priced. The reason a cost estimator is so important is that each of these things costs money to get done. And you're taking people's hopes and aspirations for what they want to accomplish. And you're gonna tell them, of course, we can build it for the money you have available, or of course we cannot build it for the money that you have available. So early on, in any of these processes, you need to come to a truer understanding of what it's going to take to actually realize that. And there are cost estimators who can cost a project that is fully designed and they'll count all of the, the nails and all of the bolts and all of the pieces of wood as good quantity surveyors and they will come up with a price for that. But when you're in concept design, that's still, that's 
really iffy. It's a very fluid sort of costing and you need somebody who understands that, yeah, we're going to have to get some new utilities in there and, oh, yeah, you say you want it that big right now, but it's probably going to be a little bit bigger than that. So we'll put in a contingency on that and we will try to develop then a budget that we think is appropriate for the level of um, sophistication, the level of uh, detailed construction that you want to do with this particular project. And so we've worked with contract or um, cost estimators all around the world and, and just delight in them. They provide a level of reality and, and they look at you uh, because we're optimists. Uh, I say that with a great deal of pride, but I couldn't be as optimistic as I am about things if I didn't know that there was a good cost estimator, good engineers sitting there looking at me and shaking their heads and going, are you sure? <laughs> do you, yeah. Can we really do this? Or may, may, maybe we should rethink this. And it's so great to, that you're like really, you know, paying attention. Of course you are, but just to bring this up and bring it out as so key because often people say yeah we had this great plan and then we ran out of money and so we kind of we lots lots of things got cut right oh and, yeah and having that person there like in this whole process uh can really you know help focus and and yeah i love it you know it's always good to be optimistic but then have somebody in the room who goes well <laughs> yeah um, exactly yeah exactly well you know it's like dealing with with um wild landscapes um you you want to make these things happen. You want to protect them, and you want to protect clients' sense of optimism and and the the sense that they can make these things happen. And there is nothing sadder than a group of people that have come through an awful design process and have not been able to realize their dreams, and they have something in the end that they're not happy with. You know, what what a waste of human endeavor. Yes, no, absolutely, yeah. And, and of course, you know, this is so important when you, uh, in all stages, and of course also when you're thinking about, you know, animal well-being and human well-being. So could you give some examples of how, you know, what are some of the things you think about when you're thinking about the stakeholders, like the animals, the visitors, the people working with the animals? Well, you know, if you just think about um, dealing with all of our senses, animal senses and our senses, there's the, the feeling of sunlight on your face or shade, depending on which way. And so, you know, for both animals and people, you want them to be in a situation where they feel comfortable year round as the seasons change that you don't put your, your primary viewpoint where you're gonna be staring into the, the sun and the animals are gonna be backlit, for instance, or you don't create a, this huge sunny area when the animal really is a shade loving species. Uh, you know, simple things like that, the use of water, funneling of wind to be able to cool areas, um, the smells, where are you placing smells that then waft over and, and become part of the environment that you're experiencing, even without your knowledge that that is happening? And that can happen with manure smells, the smells of hot dogs or the smell of sauerbraten uh, makes no difference. And then there's acoustics. So a number of years ago, I worked with an acoustic engineer on a series of designs where we wanted to isolate the sound of... Um, the habitats for the animals from the sound of a nearby public space and creating sound walls 
within that to drop the decibel level, uh, tuning the waterfalls so that it really became a white noise and not an obnoxious noise in the background. And we did a series of lectures then to, to get zoos to understand that the acoustic environment that they are in charge of in their zoo every day is something that they have complete control of. So when you think about the vehicles that go around, the, the um, uh, leaf blowers, the rakes, the keys jingling on a keeper's hip, any of those things that be can become triggers for animal response or people response or not, you have the power to think about in creating a space that is restful and peaceful and rejuvenating. And we'll go back to that word respectful again, respectful of the species that are going to be using that space. So, you know, those are the kinds of things on a big picture level that, that we think about. And then there's all the the going into an animal's lifestyle and their their activity budget and what they as a species they do or they don't do, and then giving wide berth for individual preferences within that, much the same way that you have to do for people. So, you know, I, I talk to people all the time that people used to live in a much bigger environment. And we went for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And we walked all over the place. And home might not be the same place every night. And yet Today, we tend to live in the same place. We go to the grocery store, we go home, we go to school, we go to work, and our lives are much more constrained, but we have uh, behavioral enrichment, if you will, in the form of bookstores, of uh, operas, of sports uh, teams and sports fields that we have figured out those things that we need to do as a community to make people's lives better and that we open up the opportunities for them to engage in those. So the same thing you're trying to do with animals every day. And so it's not just that animals or people need to have vast quantities of spaces, but they need to have spaces that meet their needs and they need to be able to uh, have choice in how they use those spaces. And so I think a lot of the, the work that's being done right now, John Coe's work at Philadelphia with Zoo 360 is really some amazing work in trying to give animals choice about where they are at any particular time and for them to be able to enjoy different situations throughout the day. Yes, and that's so close to my heart, this whole 24-7 across lifespan. I really, you know, think it's so important. You mentioned already at the beginning of the part but really thinking about what is meaningful to animals and uh, and of course you know like you said around the day and all their lives and how do we create these spaces and and I really appreciate you I mean there's so much to share and we only have about an hour or so but you're kind of you know piquing the interest especially there's a lot of people who write to us and say oh I had no idea you could do that job to work for animals or with animals and uh, and I think your your work and the work that that you're doing through the studios is such a another way of showing what you could be doing uh, to get into the sphere of working and acting for animals and mm. but it amazes me constantly I had no idea when I started my career that I would be doing anything like this but at this point in my life I can't imagine having done anything else it has been so worthwhile and I've met so many amazing animals much less people all over the world and and the friendships 
that you keep. And, and when you have questions, all you have to do is pick up the phone or get on Zoom. You know, there are so many ways that we can all communicate right now and can participate in conservation endeavors, whether it happens to be in situ or ex situ. Uh, those, those things, there's a rich world that we have there if we choose to seize the day and to realize our responsibilities for acting. Yes, and responsibilities is just such an important word, like respect has come back, you know, in community and collaborations, but this responsibility that we have for either the animals that we design, these comfortable, these safe spaces, um, of course, for the people who visit, for the people who work with animals, for the broader community, and taking responsibility. So for what it is that we are doing, whether it's the materials that we're using and, um, and how we connect to this natural world. So I really appreciate that. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to uh, invite you to share a story in closing. But before we do that, uh, you're, uh, you know, a fellow of the American Society of Landscape Architects. And can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what that means and how did, is that something that you apply for or how, how do you get that? <laughs> how does this happen? Um, well, you, you are asked to submit an application when you get to a certain stage within your professional uh, career. So to become a landscape architect in the United States, much like in, in many places around the world, you have to have a certain um, university background. And, and in my case, I had five years of, of university to get a Bachelor of Landscape Architecture, which is a professional degree. After that, you have to practice for three years um, under the supervision of a licensed landscape architect. And then you take a licensing exam, which is about health, safety, and welfare for people that you would be um, practicing on behalf of. Um, and at that point, it was like a three-day exam, which was probably the most intense thing that I've ever done in my life. And then, you know, once, once you get licensed, you go on and practice and, and anymore, you have ongoing um, education that you have to participate in because the, the world in which we exist as licensed professionals is a litigious world when things fail or when people get hurt. They like to have somebody to blame, particularly in the United States and, and increasingly other places. So we have responsibility to the public around us and, and to constantly be gearing up your understanding so that it is absolutely current with rules and regulations and materials and ways of thinking about fire safety, for instance, in, in California or those landscapes where fire is a real uh, part of your day-to-day -day existence. And so after a number of years, and I had been president of the, the local chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architects, I was asked to submit uh, for to become a fellow and was voted in at that point. And it was really a, a lovely honor. And it was great to be walked down the aisle, if you will. It was kind of like getting married. No, <laughs> but I had my, my sponsor, who was Cornelia Han Oberlander who is a, a well-known British Columbian landscape architect who is my real hero in dealing with ecology and landscapes. And, and so we formed a, a lifelong friendship on the basis of that. And it's something that I'm, I'm very proud of. 
Yes, welcome. Yeah, congratulations. Obviously, it's not new, but uh, it's absolutely an amazing achievement. So, uh, and and like you also mentioned, the the people, mentors, friendships, all the things that come from there, and also the importance of uh, licensing and of you know really having a very structured way of working and and of course getting recognition for you know the decades and decades of work that you have done so wonderful mm. yeah thank so, you yeah so you know i know there is just so much more to say and i'm i'm not even joking when i would love to <laughs> back on another you know podcast where we're going to go more in a deep dive because we went on like this whirlwind of different things um you know different topics and uh, but uh, i thought it was really nice to get and really informative and really important to get uh, insights in what you know a little bit of insights what it's like uh, to do the, the work that you're doing with the studios and with all the clients and the people and uh, and how you do that for animals and for conservation and community and so i really really enjoyed it and i was uh, I would like to invite you if you could, you know, in closing, tell us a short story of perhaps an experience with either an animal or a group of animals, or um, maybe, you know, after a new exhibit opened for them or something else that kind of stands out. That would be wonderful. All right. I've got one right at hand, which is not about any exhibit, but about a bird named Fred. And many people who have um, followed our website for years know about. Fred in particular, he was a Javan rice finch. And he had been um, in this big cage in the middle of a children's museum on Bainbridge Island and surrounded by kids running around and with no access to outside. And, and we kind of went, oh my God, we can't, this is just not right. And so we asked if we could take him and his cage. And so they, they agreed and, and realized that there was a better way of dealing with this. And we brought Fred in the cage over to our office and it was a big cage and I'd never had a bird before. And he was lovely and I'm trying to understand who this creature was. And then I was at the Calgary Zoo in the volunteer department and they had a goldfinch there that free flew throughout all of the offices on the, the upper floor. And I went, well, how does that work? And they said, oh, it's great. You know, we just leave the doors open on his cage and he knows where his cage is and goes back there to roost at night and his food is there. And then he comes and visits us during the rest of the day. And so I came back to the office and we opened Fred's doors to his cage. And it took him about a month to finally come out because he kept looking at it going, hmm, hmm. And then he flew to my desk and with you, know, like deep, <gasps> it was a long flight for this little bird that hadn't been flying distances before. And he very quickly became a, a total part of our life in the office. And he would sit on our keyboards or sit on our monitors. He would talk to us when we were having um, staff meetings or project meetings. He would fly into the middle of it and sit and look at everybody and hop over to your hand and have something to say about the project that we were working on and he was so amazing to watch as an individual but as an avian individual and i think we learned so much from him and so much patience with dealing with little poops all over the place but but it was quite wonderful and he died two years ago now but we all still kind of miss him yeah. there you go I can imagine that sounds wonderful, Fred. And it's, yeah, like you say, getting to know the individual, who is this, 
you know, who's Fred, you know, and, uh, and Fred being this living creature that reminds you all, you know, as you were working on, of course, among other things, why you were doing what you're doing and still continue to do. So thank yes. you so much for coming onto this podcast and sharing all these little nuggets and I really look forward to connecting you on another podcast uh, and going uh, deeper into some of these topics. They're really, really important and fascinating. So thanks so much for that, Becca. Perfect, Sabrina. Thank you so much for having me on with you. This was a great discussion. Let's do it again. So that was the end of another wonderful podcast. We'll make sure you can you know, reach the studios and of course look at the website and and learn more about it maybe it has even inspired you to become a landscape architect or a zoo designer so uh, you can always reach out and of course well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right and at animal concepts we help you care for animals and for yourself and of course for the planet that we share so that you can be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare and in your conservation efforts. And the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform is the first online platform combining human, animal, and planetary well-being through PAWS, One Care, and the Earth Charter and Sustainable Development Goals. So you can get lots of resources and, of course, continued education so you and the animals and, of course, the planet can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.